I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello and welcome back to The Hedgehog and the Fox. In this program, we're looking at what I used to think of as the humble filing cabinet. That was, until I read Craig Robertson's fascinating book, The Filing Cabinet, A Vertical History of Information. It's easy to regard filing cabinets as space-hogging lumps of metal from a bygone era, standing inert in the corner, filled with dusty files. An antiquated, time-consuming, inefficient way of storing information, obsolete now that our data lives, as we say, in the cloud. But previous generations thought of their data as live too. And a century or so ago, filing cabinets were being marketed as the essence of modernity and business efficiency, the very heart of the modern office, or perhaps more accurately, its brain. Back then, information meant paper. It represented knowledge that could be turned into profit. Swift access to the right document at the right time was critical, Then as now, accessibility mattered. Craig Robertson writes, The idea that paper was live spoke to the need to prioritise accessibility and retrieval, to ensure that paper and information flowed through an office. This countered the idea that storage was passive, or that paper once stored was dead, that it could not be found. Even when stored in a filing cabinet, it was placed standing to attention, where it could be found easily in the future. Craig is clearly fascinated by the detail of the history of the filing cabinet. He writes, I look at drawer slides, folders, tabs and steel to appreciate how the filing cabinet works. But he's also really interested in, and interesting on, the big picture revealed by paying attention to filing cabinet's history. As you'll hear, without stretching the point, They raise questions of gender, race and capitalism, as well as the meaning of work. The filing cabinet was invented in the United States in the 1890s and quickly became a fixture of offices in North America and beyond. When I spoke to Craig, I thought a good place to start was with what came before the filing cabinet, the 19th century method of storing paperwork that the filing cabinet would sweep away. The second half of the 19th century seems to mark the beginning of a change, right, in the storage of paper. So prior to that, in most situations, paper was stored bound, 
in books, right? And you yeah. could have copy books or press books where outgoing correspondence was written and t- there would be essentially a form of tissue paper underneath that would record the letter and you would ba- bind the incoming letter when it came in. Then the, you have the development of things like pigeonholes where papers can be stuffed in. But generally what's happening up until the sort of last decades of the 19th century is paper is either bound in a book or it's stored loose in a sense where it's very temporary. So it might be on a spike, you know, on a desk, again, as I said, in a pigeonhole or just piled high. And then in the, from about 1860, 1870 on, we have the development of these different, what are known as flat files, right? So um, one of them is essentially like what I would think of as a, it's like a really fancy clipboard, right? You know, so a flat board file with a clip or some arches, the most famous is sort of what is called a Shannon file. And those were where you could stack flat lots of papers and some of them came with indexes, right? So you could A, B, C, D, you could record, put them under alphabetical indexes. You had what's called a box file, um, and that basically emulated a book. And again, you would open it up, and there would be the equivalent of a, f- a flat file, but it was enclosed, right? But again, it was it was loose paper stored stacked. And then we had document files, which were pretty common and more common in legal offices, and those were files where the paper was folded in half and actually stored sort of on its edge stuffed into almost like something that was getting closer to a drawer. Those were sort of the immediate changes to the world of filing in the office prior to the filing cabinet. And so what are the pressures on the office that make the filing cabinet seem like such a good thing when it comes in in the the late 19th, early 20th century? What What is it that's changing in the nature of how offices work how business is perceived, what it's perceived to be about, that actually brings in that new age. So the filing cabinet responds to problems in a particular kind of office, and that is an office that's dealing with a large amount of paper. One of the arguments I make is that the you know the filing cabinet is a response to changes in capitalism. What's going on is like capitalism is taking on its corporate form. There's lots of vertical integration. These moves to create larger businesses and so therefore larger enterprises. And so therefore there's an immense amount of paper circulating and it's loose because you've got also the development of the typewriter and carbon paper. So you've got increasing amounts of loose unbound paper that you have to store in some way. The problem is that piling it up or stuffing it in a um, pigeonhole just doesn't work. And so the other issue that's coming from capitalism is ideas of efficiency. And so the filing cabinet speaks to this moment in at least the U.S. business imagination, which is where the filing cabinet's invented, this moment when storage becomes a problem of retrieval rather than just here's a space to put our papers and we can figure out how to pull them from a pile. What happens in that late 19th, early 20th century moment is the focus moves to the moment of retrieval, not so much the moment of storage. So that question becomes less a spatial problem of storage, but a temporal problem of retrieval. So does the filing cabinet, as we 
understand it as we think of it today, does it have an inventor that can be identified in a specific place and time or is it contested? It's contested to some extent. So I think the safest answer for me is I generally just say the filing cabinet was invented in the United States in the 1890s. Um, But if you go to Wikipedia, Wikipedia will give you a story and it is a story that definitely points to someone or a company who we can think of as being at least one of the first, right? And what's so appealing about this as the origin story of the filing cabinet is that the company that is attributed to inventing the filing cabinet is a company called the Library Bureau. And the Library Bureau was founded by Melville Dewey of the Dewey Decimal System. And as the name suggests, Library and Bureau, it developed as a as a company trying to build furniture for libraries and offices. And so we have an origin story where, in fact, a a gentleman who works for a charity organization in upstate New York has seen the development of the library card catalogue into index cards in offices and wants something bigger to store paper on so he can easily access paper so he approaches the library bureau office they come up with one which possibly is exhibited at the 1893 chicago world's fair but the archive's a little bit ambiguous about that so it's possibly exhibited there but kind of goes nowhere until right at the end of the 19th century when the library bureau starts to manufacture filing cabinets and then finally in 1902 or 1903 it enters into their catalog and it that time, by the late 1890s, another company known as Globe Wernacki has um, claimed invention of the filing cabinet. And in fact, that original filing cabinet is in the Smithsonian in the, in the right. United States, right? So, you know, it's in the air. Like, there yeah. is a problem that needs to be solved. And the filing cabinet emerges as a solution to that problem, even though nothing really in the filing cabinet, the parts of the filing cabinet aren't really that radically new. But what is new is how they used to allow paper to stand on its edge. And as as ridiculous as that sounds, that's the thing. That's the innovative move of the filing cabinet, is it allows you to store paper on its edge, because as we know, paper can't stand on its edge on its own. Odd as that sounds, I will argue that's the innovation we need to focus on. Right. I mean, I was going to ask you a sort of ontological question. What is it that makes a filing cabinet worthy of that name? Because in your book, you show some sort of, I guess, sort of forerunners or, you know, dead ends or, you know, things constructed of wood or things which had the the, the paper standing on its, you know, standing um, uh, vertically. So I wondered what, what is a sort of minimal definition for a filing cabinet to be a filing cabinet? It's an interesting thing because, you know, I think another, what you also see, and people have sent this to me, like they'll find something that's called a file cabinet from the 15th century or the 16th century, but it's not actually called by by its contemporary users a file cabinet. We, we yeah. retrospectively look back at it and call it a file cabinet. I, at least at the beginning of the book, try to be careful and, and refer to what I'm talking about as a vertical filing cabinet. Right. And I think that's what makes it distinct. But, you know, a cabinet to me, like to be a a filing cabinet is a designated space of storage for individual or discrete sets of documents. Right. So at its most general level, if something satisfies those two things, like it's a cabinet, some kind of structure and it stores papers in discrete ways, then you could argue it's a filing cabinet. 
what I'm talking about with the vertical filing cabinet and what it makes it unique in the longer history of filing cabinets is that it stores paper on its long edge. And that's the other strange thing. The, the vertical part of vertical filing is storing it on its long edge, even though when we look at it, we might think, well, that's horizontal. It's not on its, on its short edge. It's not standing yes. up vertically. But the vertical was, was referencing not the rectilinear cabinet that I'm interested in, but actually the way the manila folders and the paper in them were understood to stand on yeah. on their vertical edge. So what we were talking about earlier, those flat files become known as horizontal files right. in contrast to the, to the vertical files yeah. in the vertical filing cabinet. And their mass manufacture is made possible by improvements in, in steel manufacture, which just so happens to also make possible the construction of huge skyscrapers. And that's something which the manufacturers of the early filing cabinets took full advantage of, you know, the, the verticality that's, uh, that's mentioned in your, in your book so often. Yeah, no, um, there's a company, Shaw Walker, who come out of Michigan in the United States, and they are one of the sort of top-of-the-line filing cabinet companies. And they have this great campaign called Built Like a Skyscraper. And to be fair, all office equipment companies make this comparison, but Shaw Walker really runs with it. And so, yeah, the idea of Built Like a Skyscraper is to connect the filing cabinet to the skyscraper and therefore to establish it as something modern and something innovative. But it's also to clarify that it's strong and it's sturdy. And in the language of the ads, it's rigid. Therefore, it can hold the thousands and thousands of loose bits of paper that you could put in the normal, the conventional size, which is a four-drawer filing cabinet. Shaw Walker really works with that built like a skyscraper and analogy and has in its ads next to it a drawing of the Woolworth building, which in, was finished in 1913 and until the Empire State Building was the world's tallest building. And they have the metal skeleton structure of it next to the filing cabinet. Then they have these gentlemen in suits doing exercise routines around the filing cabinet, you know, to to show that it's strong. But yeah. also, as I argued, it shows some other issues about what it meant to work in an office as a man in the early 20th yes. century. I definitely want to come back to that. But yeah, just on the on those sort of demonstrations in the ads, you, you get pictures of men jumping into the drawers to show how strong they are. And you, the proposition is, you know, you may think this is going to be warped and it's going to have to be sent off for repair, but in fact, it's just going to close as smoothly as it, as it ever did. And along with that, there was also lots of claims made for fire retardancy and rodent resistance and all sorts, all sorts of things. So they were, really, they were really setting out their stall, setting out their case quite powerfully, you know, saying this is a, this is a secure repository for your data. Yeah, no, definitely. And I think that argument about security and protection is, re- is really important. And implicit in what, you're say, what you've said, right, is the move from a wooden filing cabinet to a steel filing cabinet, which happened almost simultaneously, like within four or five years of the filing cabinet really kicking off in the early 20th century. There was a lot of concern about protection and security. And I I would argue part of that is a response to the move away from the book, right? So the book book has an integrity. It's understood. It binds pages in, it protects the pages and therefore it protects the information on those pages if we're thinking about the book in terms of of businesses. 
And so, yeah, the, the concerns about protecting it from rodents, protecting it from fire is is all part and parcel of establishing the integrity of the filing cabinet. And then there was a real attempt to do this. And, you know, there were more expensive filing cabinets and the more expensive steel filing cabinets came with two steel walls in which companies put asbestos between those walls to, again, help protect the papers from within and then they would companies would do these experiments where they would build these giant furnaces and put the filing cabinets in them and heat them up to ridiculous 2000 degree Fahrenheit temperatures to check that they were still secure then pull them out and then drop them onto a pile of bricks you know to try and recreate what it might look like in a fire but the thing was that while obviously steel doesn't burn like wood does what they it took a little while to realize is that it conducts heat so while the filing cabinet itself could be protected the files inside could be really badly singed and in fact just as a, an aside the effect of, of of using a filing cabinet if you like to cook something um there's sort of been a hack in recent years in the united states where people who want to cook their barbecue their ribs and so forth and their brisket, they get old metal filing cabinets and they get a fire going in the bottom and then put the meat you know, in different wow. drawers above to make use of the way in which it, you know, it conducts heat. The filing cabinet recipe book. Indeed. That's, that's, that's my next project. So that's, that's kind of like the afterlife of the filing cabinet. And I was saying before we began recording today, my career sort of began in publishing in the 1990s, which was kind of, I guess, the twilight years of the filing cabinet. And so I kind of think of them as really places of inert, things you've sort of finished working on actively. It was a sort of repository where where that sort of data went and was stored but and archived. But from what you write about in the early 20th century, they were really presented as as sort of living machines, as a sort of throbbing heart of the business, as sort of like a sort of great brain that could be dispersed in all sorts of directions. And the claims made for them were much more than a way of of storing inert uh, documents. Yeah, no, and part of that goes back to this problem they were a response to and this idea that storage becomes a problem of retrieval. And that gets connected to larger ideas about efficiency in business, which created this idea that the business should run like a machine, right? And therefore, the equipment within businesses should themselves be machines. So the filing cabinet gets presented in that way as a machine. And the way it is understood to function as a machine is that it has an, an automatic memory. What the filing cabinet does, right, it's not this inert object. What it is, is it's taking on or sort of substituting or replacing the inadequacy of human memory. Because again, we have this idea that business has exploded on a scale such that no longer is it owned by one person who can remember everything that goes on and all the transactions and supplement poor record keeping. It's now at a scale beyond which an individual person can remember. So the filing cabinet is given the attributes of human memory, but at a scale in which it can understand and, or at least remember the location of thousands and thousands of bits of paper. And so you get this idea that the filing cabinet has an automatic memory. And all they're talking about there, right, tabbed manila folders and tabbed guide cards, right? I mean, that's all they're talking about, right, is 
they do push that again. If you wanted to spend a lot of money, you could buy a set of guide cards um, that broke the alphabet down into hundreds and hundreds of, of categories, right? Again, to allow a file clerk to be able to quickly go and find the particular document. So the idea is the filing cabinet does the memory work that a person used to do. And of course, that therefore ends up as the filing cabinet is celebrated for being this machine that remembers the labor or the work that goes with the filing cabinet is devalued, right? Because you don't have to think. So you get the filing cabinet or the filing, the system of filing cabinets actually referred to as the intellect of the business and you get a sort of um, converse automation of the human element of labor which is completely crazy really when you think about it because it was only as good as what the, the the human decisions the human rationality the human intervention but that was that was sort of what was being sold to the people who were buying these systems was you know it sort of designs the the human variability out and gives you this sort of this perfect system yeah, so what, yeah, it definitely was. And I think the ease with which the filing cabinet as a machine could be played up and the ease with which you could downplay and devalue the work of operating it, if it's a machine, is that that work was being done by women. You know, the filing cabinet therefore allows us to think about and or is a way in to um, what many other people have written about too, which is the way in which the office, as well as all this new office equipment, the work of the clerk, the 19th century male clerk, gets broken down into all these specific tasks, again, in the name of efficiency. And many of those are done by women who enter the office for the first time in any significant number at the end of the 19th century and the beginning of the 20th century. And so, yes, that work, the work of filing and that type of office work becomes what I refer to as information labor. And I don't mean that to refer to a particular occupational category, but what it is meant to capture is that in the office we can see there's a new way to work with information. And that is a way, sort of a very instrumental encounter with information where you don't even have to understand the content of the information, right? You don't have to understand the content of the file. All you are doing, because the filing cabinet is doing all the thinking for you, is retrieving a particular document. And so this instrumental encounter with information that's not knowledge work, you don't need to know things, becomes, I would argue, a very gendering practice, right? So it becomes understood to be feminine labor, in part because, you know, women are understood also in this very, you know, like stereotypical way to have nimble fingers and to have you know to be very dexterous and therefore they're able to handle information they can deal with having information at their fingertips you know that phrase comes into existence in the in this period even when in the promotional literature it's only the the hands and the the lower arms which are shown it is clearly being presented as women's work and I wanted to ask you, who were the women who were recruited to do this job? What kind of women were considered to be suitable for this work? And what qualities were they being recruited for? Yeah, so, so first of all, as we've just said, we, the idea is that women 
have nimble fingers and women have dexterity. But yes, once we get into the office, not all women are considered to be the ideal file clerk. So the office that we're talking about here, the office that is in the sort of literature that emerges, the vocational literature to encourage women into work, and then the office practice manuals and so forth, they're all talking about, again, sort of the idea of a larger office, a corporate office. So this is an office that is raced, classed and organized according to sexuality too and ethnicity. So this is a space almost exclusively for white women. Now, there are offices within other racial and ethnic communities, but the office that is being presented in catalogs and in books is the white office. It's an office ideally where there would be middle-class women doing work. However, at the low level of the file clerk, um, the women that are hired tend to be the daughters of immigrants, definitely not middle class in that way. And so therefore, oddly, as odd as it may seem, the work of filing and other low-level office work is understood as a way in which these lower class women can be trained and to behave and to think as middle class women. Also, if depending on their ethnicity, to be middle class and unquestionably Anglo-Saxon white women. So the office becomes this space where you are not only working on files, but you're understood to be working on yourself. And they use this, this, the, the euphemism of personality becomes that's what is being taught to you. But yeah. personality, when you really unpack it in this literature, is all about middle class decorum and etiquette and behavior. Yeah, you talk about the shift from seeking character, which used to be how it was described, what was being looked for in in an employee, to personality. But as you've just alluded to, it seems to be anything anything but. It seems to be conformity rather than than personality. Yeah, and so that and personality really becomes control, like it becomes control. And the other thing I think, just to quickly follow up there, age is is also really important here as well, right? So the women that are being hired into these low-level office jobs in particular, uh, clerical jobs are all young. And the assumption is that these women, when they will marry, well, the assumption is they will marry, and when they marry, that they will stop work, right? So, yes. so, the, so then we have the idea of the file girl or the office girl. And so, again, that's where we're seeing like a, a really sort of dominant heteronormative ideas um, coming in to also shape who is the ideal file clerk. Yeah. And you see sort of anxieties being played out, don't you, both about what is a, a suitable job for a man and therefore what, what is left as a, you know, considered a suitable job for women, and also about the, sort of negotiating the relationship in the office. That's sort of played out around the filing cabinets, isn't it, in, in a way? Yeah, it does. I mean, just taking up that last part first. So there's this idea and assumption, and this is picked up in movies and, and short stories and magazines and so forth and the occasional novel, that, of course, the file girl is there ultimately to get her husband, right? And so you have that that idea of, in popular culture, really playing out that, that relationship between the file clerk and, and a senior male worker. But in the actual practice of office work, that may, may have happened, may not have happened. We don't really know how often it happened. But what we 
is very clear to me when you read the literature is that there is this tension going on about the role of women in an office and the notion of sort of heterosexual relationships and so forth. And clothes become the site of struggle for that, right? The expectation where these are young women who are earning money based on surveys that were done. If they were not living at home, the second largest amount of money that they paid out was for clothes, right? So they're interested in looking stylish, but they have to really, as sadly still in contemporary offices, have to navigate how they dress within this very, as I said, heteronormative environment where male workers are also, I think, struggling with, or and this goes to the first part of your question, like struggling with what does it mean now that in the space of the office there are women? This used to be an inherently masculine space. So even if, again, even if men were just merely sitting at desks thinking, right, it was still that was acceptable. And even if they were low-level file clerks, they were moving sort of heavy boxes around and doing things. And so their their strength, you know, wasn't, their masculinity in that sense wasn't being questioned. But all of a sudden, when women come into the office, what does that mean for the office as a site of masculine work? And this goes back to what we were talking about earlier with the Built Like a Skyscraper campaign. And so on the Directly and explicitly, the men doing these weird exercise routines um, on the filing cabinet, jumping into an open drawer, doing something like a pull up. <laughs> it looks like kind of like a pull up on an open drawer, filing cabinet drawer. That's to show the strength of the of the filing cabinet. But it also clearly to me speaks to the anxiety I was just talking about, about what it meant to be a man in an office. So these guys in suits are showing their strength, right? They're showing yes. their you know, sort of virility next to these giant skyscrapers and so forth. And then the contrast in that ad is to show how effective the draw slides of the filing cabinet are. We don't have a woman. We have a five-year-old girl with a thread of cotton pulling out the open drawer to really infantilize the work that women are doing in contrast in these ads to the implicit work that these sort of very masculine males are doing. Yeah, I'm just thinking, once you've done the filing cabinet cookery book, you can do the filing cabinet workout book. I know, but, uh, yeah, definitely. <laughs> so, Maybe that one might you may, go straight to YouTube. But yeah. You may want to, uh, yeah, you may want to leave filing cabinets behind after this, who knows. Um, as well as looking at the promotional literature, which is really telling about so many of these uh, cultural attitudes and assumptions, you also investigate a whole sort of vanished world of filing associations people will get together and meet and talk about filing systems and and filing education which was a component of a certain stratum of um of, of high school um age students in the u.s and how-to books you know there's, there's a whole sort of culture around filing and to tell you know to, i guess to sort of channel people in the right direction and make them um suitable filing clerks yeah that was something again that maybe this reveals too much about it, me but that really caught me off guard, like I was really surprised when I actually found on eBay, um, I, I, I found this textbook, this this filing textbook, actually created by the Library Bureau, who we've talked about earlier. And what I discovered was that these companies would sell textbooks 
and filing practice or filing equipment, filing practice kits to schools, right, to um, teach them to file. And then the hope was, I guess, that when they went into an office, somehow they would have the power and authority to say, we need library bureau equipment, not Shaw Walker equipment. But no, it's fascinating the way in which filing was taught. And so, again, filing and the filing cabinet emerges at this moment at the beginning of the 20th century, where less than 5% of American teenagers are going to high school. So there's this attempt through the first couple of decades of the 20th century to try and get more and more children to stay in school. And the result of that is the development of a whole vocational stream of teaching. And so commercial education becomes part of that. And then filing becomes part of that. And the companies would construct these, these textbooks around like 24 lesson courses, 48 lesson courses, 72 one hour long lessons on how to file. And then they would sell them, you know, as modular sets to schools who would generally just incorporate filing classes into a larger class on office work. Um, I didn't really find any examples of where they devoted entire courses to filing for a year, but they could if they wanted to. And so that that notion of education in a much more formal way feeds into what I was talking about earlier and the informal idea about when you're in the office, using this office equipment will teach you the discipline and control of middle-class values and behavior. And so this is doing it in a much more formal way in schools. And then, again, the filing cabinet equipment manufacturers also helped support the development of these filing associations, which were also one of my favorite finds. Um, and I found these in the arc, like the Library Bureau archive, such as it exists, is actually a beat up metal filing cabinet in the attic of like a 17th century house in Herkimer, New York, right? And then in the bottom of one of these drawers, I found like eight years of this magazine called The File, and then subsequently I found another magazine called Filing, and these were created, you know, as um, as clearinghouses of sorts, right, to distribute information on filing, and so in most major East Coast cities, there was a filing association. I mean, they might only have, they probably only had a 100 members at the most, but they would meet monthly, and someone would come in and talk about the problems of filing in an insurance company, and all of this was being used to try and professionalize filing, not by file clerks, but by what were known as file executives or the heads of file departments, who are generally women. And like I say, there's this attempt to create a profession that fails, but it's still a, it's a fascinating insight into what was still the novelty of filing. And again, we can see how the failure of that filing, the attempt to professionalize, is in large part because of the success of the presentation of the filing cabinet as this automatic machine. So there's no there's no work associated with it. So the labor that goes into classifying is completely downplayed. And the filing cabinet as a machine, well, they're just machine operators. It's not a profession. It's not like librarianship or something like that. Yeah. I was wondering, in conclusion, we talked back at the start about the 19th century model of the of the great book in which um, knowledge was accumulated, a sort of chronology on the desk of, you know, the lawyer or whoever, the insurance clerk. And then we, we spent a long time talking about the sort of the drive for efficiency, the sort of granular, granularity of, of information 
in the early part of the 20th century and the sort of idea of control and every piece of information having its proper place. At any point in the in the past nine years when you when you were investigating this subject, did you ever think about our current sort of information economy, our systems? Because, you know, if you go online, you'll see lots of, you know, hacks to be more efficient or how to manage your information and programs to, to manage your information. Did you ever sort of try to, you know, look on our present moment, perhaps with the, with the sort of mindset of a future historian and wonder, you know, about the particularities of it, which might, just as we may find it quite quaint to think about filing associations or, or Victorian counting houses, you know, you know, taking a sort of outside view of our own knowledge and information economy. Yeah, I did. Um, I did at times. Oh, that's the next book. <laughs> yeah, I did at times do that, but I did at other times cling to my identity um, somewhat as an historian. Um, yes, yeah, I'm a futurologist. <laughs> yeah, I, I. I mean, I address this a little bit in the afterward to the book, um, and also to be honest, where I most explicitly address that was when you're writing a book about the filing cabinet, you become incredibly self-conscious about your uh, the way in which you organize your information yourself, right? And so that that really stopped me getting into this project because I suddenly was like, you know, what do I use? Like, like how do I do this? I've just been a guy using, you know, word and cutting and pasting things. And so, so in that sense, there was, there was some anxiety about that. And then you go out and you explore and you discover all these, all this different software, which allows you to think granularly about what you're doing. I mean, yeah. Many of your listeners may be aware of things like Scrivener or Devon Think Pro. Devon right? Think, yes. You yes, know, yes. and Scrivener in particular uses the index card to give you that granular certainty. I don't know if this will be seen as, as quaintness, but one of the things that I find interesting is over the last decade or more is the encouragement where we as individuals have been encouraged to curate our photographs, to curate all our lives on this thing called this amorphous thing called the cloud which you know again we're encouraged to think about as not as not having any physical place yeah and so i found i always i found that interesting that we're not really taught to like we're not encouraged to file things right we're encouraged to curate things but i do think looking back we may at least from an environmental point of view i don't know if we'll think about the quaintness of the cloud but we will look back yes. and say yes. this is one of the you know one of the most impressive like marketing moves you know of this period that these giant data centers that you know use more electricity than a small town are presented to us as this you know is like a feral thing that has no place right versus the filing cabinet it's selling point was it was this place right it was this precise you know this distinct place of storage that you went you know knowing you could go there knowing that you would find these records and so you know as you can tell i it, i've thought about these things but i haven't thought about them in in necessarily in a in a particularly um coherent way you know my my focus of course being on the you know filing cabinet cookbook and um exercise exercise <laughs> yes. video I was talking to Craig Robertson about his book, The Filing Cabinet, which is available now in all formats from the University of Minnesota Press. More information on their website. On the Hedgehog and Fox website, you'll find links to over 70 more episodes of this programme. You can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. It's on Apple, Google and Spotify and elsewhere. And catch up on any interviews you've missed. I'll be back again soon with another programme. 
So until then, thank you very much for listening, and goodbye. 